Hey, Joe, we're about to talk to Dave. We are. Are we doing the pre-roll that's this, actually pre? This is truly pre. That's amazing. We never do that. What, what a piece this is. Yeah. I mean, this article. Yeah. I'm not showing you a weapon or anything. <laughs> or a slice of cake. Ooh. That would be more exciting. <laughs> yeah. It would. Well, more exciting than Dave's article? Are you nuts? More exciting than a weapon. Oh, yeah. No. Okay. Okay. That, that, that might be, depending on the cake. Might, might be depending on the cake. So we've got a lot of good feedback. We say that every time. I don't you even do. want to put this in because I just keep saying that. I, I'm, I've got a, I, had, I had such an emotional experience reading this article today. Really? I did. I did. I was, I was listening to we a certain saying, kind of music. You shouldn't, be, you shouldn't be saying this. You should tell him this. I, yeah, but I, I, I want to get ready. I feel like, you know, we have a few minutes before we told him we'd call. Okay. And I, I feel like we need to get in the headspace for this, right, in the so collective you, headspace. You were doing what? You were listening to something? I was listening to some music. I was at a, at a, at a coffee shop. Uh, of course, a new coffee shop. Now, this does relate to his paper because, you know, I've been kicked out of my right. regular coffee shop. My community's been uprooted. They closed it. I mean, you weren't individually kicked out. I mean, they closed Do you know it. What Therefore, they're gonna, you can't yeah. go to it. Do you know what they're going to call the new thing that they're putting into my old coffee shop? I think I heard it, but I forgot. The expat. Yeah. What, what do you – I mean – Ironies, right? <laughs> so you were in a I've new been evicted from my country. That's what I'm telling you. You were in a new place. Yes. Reading. Really good place. But guess what? They're moving on Friday. Really? <laughs> yeah. Where are they moving to? They're moving somewhere downtown. The listeners don't care about this. but um, Although we did get some feedback about how much they enjoy the local edition. Yes, that's true. You know, I did want to give, but we're not going to be able to get the feedback today, probably. We're going to have an episode soon enough where we dive into the mailbag, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. We but I did want to give a shout out to listener Bunny. Mm. who showed up at our uh, live taping. And she gave us gifts. She gave us, you know, she's just too generous. She's amazing. She's doing all kinds of amazing things. She shows up to say hi. And you know, obviously longtime listener, like, right. you know, you know, she gets all the deep cuts. And, <laughs> I'm up there, and I'm up there fiddling with everything, trying to get the recording going. You remember this? I did. Because, you know, yeah. we, had to, we had to be ready. You know, we yeah. had 15 minutes to kind of get in there and, and set everything up and I had to get the mics set up and make sure everything was working. So I'm doing all that. And, and she's giving us the pens and I'm saying, thank you, but I have to kind of pay attention to what I'm doing. And then after the, after we're done, I kind of go, where's Bunny? I want to yeah. go catch up. Yeah. And we looked and we looked, we looked she in the, wasn't in the room, room, she wasn't the main there. room that we were in. Maybe she was in the other room, but we couldn't interrupt that room. Yeah. So, so B- Bunny needs to come out to Athens. Don't you think? She said that. Yeah. I, you said she said, but I'm just saying that we're going to hold her to that. Yes. But hi, Bunny, and thank you so much for the pen in case, uh, just in case, I didn't... Uh, Plural, pins. I didn't, she gave one to you and yeah, one to me. I don't care about yours. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Yours is a, John, a Judge John Hodgman pen, right? Yes. Mine is a Flophouse pen. Yes. Mm-hmm. So they were well considered and well given and well received. I would not want a Flophouse pen. Why not? Because I don't particularly care for that show. I no. tried to. Li- I told you this. I tried I, I, to listen to it once, and I know. it made I, no see, sense. I, to I'm me. eliciting. I'm eliciting this from you just so I can ah. sneer at it. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. It did. It, it that did look a little bit like a sneer trap coming, and I <laughs> and I kind of walked into it. <laughs> sneer trap. I, but you know, whatever. I love it. Sneer trap. So you were you were uh, moved by the paper today? Yeah, but I will save this for for Dave. You're, yeah. I think you're right. I I, I, w- I was moved by it, and I was in a particular like I said, a particular kind of headspace, right? Listening to this to this music, which ha- was um, which made me think of of possessions and and, mm. hung- and hungry ghosts. I am surprised that you did not when you heard that they were moving that you didn't just storm out of there. <laughs> Like, you too, you traitors, and just get up and leave. I mean, that that surprises me. 
Um, you, you mean this new place? The new place, right. Oh. Once you learned that they were going to move. Yeah, but I've only been going there for a little bit, you see. I've only, I haven't really, I'm not really. You're a man of great feelings and great passions. That is true. And so it surprises me. When I heard about my old place closing, I just didn't, I was speechless until I. Oh, I, I know. I think I finally said that, you know, you have, um, uh, whoever's done this is, has turned my heart to ash. Right. I think that's the way I put it. It is the way you put it at the time, yeah. Yeah. And it, it's true. It has not recovered. My heart is still is still broken. It's just a little clump of cinder. Yeah. 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 Two sizes too small. Your heart is like a phoenix. It will rise from those <laughs> ashes and uh, it will be great again. Uh, see, you had to go and ruin it. That, that phrase, the way you ended it, is never going to give me good feelings at all. Oh my gosh. It yeah, will you... be wonderful. <laughs> Anew. All right. All right. We, get, we got to get this. We got to get this going. Let's get Dave on the line. Let's do it. Let's get this back on track. Let's get <laughs> <laughs> let's get this party people, started. People, you know that's what people are waiting for, right? People, let's get this party started. People assign. There are some people who assign certain of our episodes to their classes. For as, real? As, yes. Yeah, we've gotten feedback to that effect. We know this is fair and, enough. Yeah. And you know, and I always suggest that um, not because of us, but because of the guests. And you know, I do the show notes to add uh, context and everything. Sure, sure, sure. So sure. if a student is interested in a in a topic, whether an undergrad or or a law student or even a graduate student, and you want to figure out like what is the state of the art of the field here, and we've had a guest on talking about this topic, and you can search through the topics on our website. Yeah. Like, what a great place to get started for a paper. It is right. Because uh, you can hear the people talking about it right. and kind of... And you can just jump yeah. right in. Yeah. And it's got, and I've got a list of links there. The show and notes the are valuable. Yeah. Right. So I guess my way... Uh, this is my way of saying, um, I'm sorry that I wasted everyone's time. With what? Well, with my ridiculous pre-roll stuff, as we normally do. I think people are here for a very serious discussion of <laughs> legal ideas. <laughs> All right. Now, now we're late. We had all this time, and now we've managed to be late. So, uh, so it's time. It's time to get Dave on the line. Dave. Hey, what's going on? This is Christian. So, hey, Christian, how you doing, man? Uh, I have just dragged my phone toward. Me. Boy, yeah, that sounds really good. And the, the only thing that I would say is because it's a speakerphone, it will save me a little bit of time. And don't feel bad if it goes awry. But to the extent like you are bumping the desk or writing something or anything like that, yeah. like that. It, it caught, you know, I got to go through and take all that out. Um, okay. So I, I'll do that. So if you need to like look at something, don't be afraid to like fumble around for stuff. That's totally fine. I can take all that out. It's just, um, but just be aware that it picks up all right. that stuff. So, so my understanding, I need to remain completely uh, yes. rigid yeah, and absolutely. motionless. That'll absolutely. make for a very relaxed conversation. If Perfect. you could, if you could apply the restraints that Joe sent uh, onto <laughs> the arms of your chairs and, and wrap them around right. your, your arms. Um, and then you don't have to wear the head restraint. Unless, right. you know, unless that seem, unless you feel well, like I got, really I got one in my office already, so that's not a big deal. <laughs> I'm not, you know what? No. I am not going to go down that road. Yeah, we, yeah. We, we, <laughs> we, 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 call, we call the little package that I sent you the Hannibal Lecter special. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Uh, uh, so I don't, hopefully I can, hopefully I can start somewhere in there without including the, the nonsense because, boy, I want people to hear about that. I want, yeah. pe- I want people to be guessing about why, 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 why you'd be talking about that. The Woo. title of the podcast can be From Happiness to Hannibal Lecter in oh. like three minutes. <laughs> where where do we start here? I I, I was telling uh, Joe before and, and all of the listeners, if I if we leave this part in, um, that I, I found today. So I was reading your paper today um, before coming back to World Headquarters I was in, a, in a new coffee shop, having been you know, as we just mentioned, so the listeners are like, would you stop talking about this? That's right. what they're thinking. But 
having been uprooted from my normal coffee shop where all of my community relations were and my my sense of self and because it went out of business. Uh, no, 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 that's no, right. It got no. it got ousted. It was, that's it, was right. it was ejected. A, a, a lease was not renewed. Oh, so in that sense, it went out of business. It lost its location. It lost its location. So I was in a new place, which is also moving. So there's a lot of uprooting going on in my life right now. And I was uh, 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 listening to some music, which made me think about like uh, about about possessions and about not having them, right? And 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 where where happiness comes from in life, which is which seems like boy, that's the biggest topic you can possibly talk about. And yet that's what your paper is about. Right. And, True, and yeah. how that and, and how that relates to uh, kind of the deepest motivational doctrines within uh, property law. Um, and, and so it was a very moving experience reading your paper today, I have to say. Um, All right. I like it. I, it touches on some, well, some existential issues. And, and, and I am um, I'm probably I probably will never grow out of being a teenager filled with existential angst. Mm. I think most people grow out of that. I feel like I kind of grew out of it and kind of came back to it. So, so maybe yeah, you're maybe I you're mean, speaking directly to me, Dave, with this paper. I, that could be. I'm trying to think. Like, I definitely grew out of my Smiths phase <laughs> like a long time ago. But I will say this: sometimes I run across one of those CDs, and and I'm I'm really like I'm drawn back into it. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> Do you just start like crying again? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I mean, like this is utterly off topic, but like my major reaction to to the Smiths, which I actually did like a lot when I was much much younger, is that it's funny, right? Like I think a lot of the stuff that they sing about is is if you take it at face value, like I can see why it comes off as morose. But I think it's like driven by this kind of ironic sense of humor that is the thing that makes it appealing. And I think I really only got that when I was like decades past it and I revisited that uh, music. I think that was a nuance I missed when I was too young and I thought it was just sort of speaking directly to my, you know, sense of adolescent suffering. Suffering can be funny. And, and, <laughs> it's hilarious. And laughing There's can be... There's nothing more hilarious than, than, than certain kinds of suffering, yeah, not all of and, and it. And it can be a great way out of it. I mean, to realize the humor in your situation when you're suffering can be a great release from that suffering. Can be. Need, needn't always be, but it can right. be. Right. There was that movie from several years ago. Um, I think the actor's name is some is. It's not Bernini. What is it? It's um. It was a movie about the Holocaust. It was set in a in a concentration camp. Right. But he was sort of this clownish figure. So there's this juxtaposition of the some of the worst suffering in human history. Oh yeah, um, life is beautiful. Life right. is beautiful. And with yeah. uh, with this sort of mad capery that he's engaged in. Um and uh, and there's something really true in that. Hmm. Yeah, I mean that was definitely the funniest of all the the Holocaust movies. Like way <laughs> way funnier than Schindler's List. Like I didn't uh, totally. laugh at all in that no. movie. No, like, no, me neither. Yeah. So part of my experience in reading it, it's interesting. We're doing a, we're in a sort of confessional modality today. But my, one of my <laughs> parts of reading it was um, I was about seven or eight pages in, and I kept with my fingers. I kept kind of slashing the air with my fingers, and I was making this little four quadrant. Um, thing he texted this to in me, the air, Dave. and then I had to okay. stop and draw it and text it to Christian. It was you know one axis runs from inclusive to exclusive, and then the right angle axis runs from possessive to dispossessive. And I'm thinking like, how would you put things in those four different spaces? And now what let me, things would be. Let me back up and say how we got there. Okay. Okay. Re- as quickly, let me do this as quickly as I can. And then you, Dave, you, you fill in the details. Tell me all the ways that I'm totally messed up about this. And there but, will be many. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. So, so a, a, a presumably ancient strand of kind of Western uh, property doctrine the, the, and even the idea of government, like they're kind of wrapped up together, right, is that, 
is that mankind wants to exploit the fruits of labors in nature and to enjoy those fruits exclusively, quickly, and without uh, interference, right? And this is translated into um, the ability in society to have what you have in, in kind of isolation from others. And so we talk about this in terms of exclusivity or ex- being able to exclude others, yes. right? But you just mentioned both, right? To have what you have excluding others, right? So right. both ideas are right there. Right. And 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 gov- well and, and and government's role is to is to kind of aid you in that process of keeping out interlopers, right? To help you retreat from society and enjoy quickly and without without recognizing the inferior claims of others to enjoy to enjoy those fruits, to enjoy the things that you've acquired. And and property law is kind of has been based on this basic theoretical assumption that right that we want to promote um, we want to uh, 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 we want society to get behind an individual's right to exclude when we recognize that right. And what you point out is that so much research about what actually makes human beings happy, not rational android actors, right? Uh, not the uh, musings of what a human being is in the mind of John Locke, but what act, what we know about actual human beings, right, is that what makes them happy seems to be, right, sharing property, getting rid of property. Let me even take that word property out of it, but not owning things, like owning less, whatever it is you own, voluntarily getting rid of it and giving it to others, like, and forming social connections with others. And if that is what truly makes people happy, and our law is oriented around kind of helping people become happy, right? Uh, uh, collectively managing ourselves so that we can maximize happiness or otherwise allocate it in a way that we think is right, then we've been kind of barking up the wrong tree by focusing on exclusion. All right, so... So how, single-mindedly how, focusing yeah, on exclusion. Yeah, how, how did I do? Yeah, that's that's good. So I have a lot to say about this. So casting all the way back to the, the, the grid that you guys mentioned at the beginning, I think of, you know, possession and exclusion as just sort of, you know, Two, two of several sides of the same coin, right? I mean, I think that that's uh, that you touched on this, right? That to the extent that law honors or creates property for whatever reason, it does that. That it sort of needs to have certain exclusive rights, and so I don't, I don't really. The paper doesn't seek to press on the, the nature of property. It kind of embraces that um, there's a sort of descriptive case of you know there being a handful of exclusive rights that comp that comprise what we formally think of as property. But I think that. The trick is, and I think you put your finger on this, right? So I'm just kind of um, phrasing this slightly differently, I think, than you did, because um, and that more or less is the claim of the paper, that what what law seeks to do by rewarding ownership is to incentivize um, the acquisition of property, right? That I think it's it's the architecture of law is designed to give people an incentive to acquire more stuff by giving them exclusive rights in it. And I think the unstated assumption is that there has to be something beneficial about that. And sort of there's there's been a longstanding, you know, for the past you know hundred odd years assumption that as people get wealthier, people get better off, right? Now, not now I'm I could even drop the word happiness out of this, right? Because I just use that as a proxy for having high subjective well-being, which I think is more or less the same thing as having high welfare, right? But for a hundred odd years. The idea of incentivized law incentivizing acquisition made perfect sense with how we understood increasing social welfare because the assumption was, hey, the more stuff you have, right, the richer you are, the more you can satisfy your own preferences. And since you don't really know ultimately what makes people subjectively happiest, 
we need to use the second best proxy for happiness, which is that if somebody has a ton of money and they buy something, we can, you know, plausibly assume that the thing they chose to buy reflects their preferences and makes them better off. And the insight of the paper, which is really drawing on a body of literature from psychology and social science that goes back at least to the 1990s, if not in many cases before, says that the paradox is that this thing that we've been incentivizing may in fact make people wealthier, but may not result in subjective well-being. And here, happiness and subjective well-being, I'm using um, simultaneously, uh, uh, you know, as though they were, what's the word I'm looking for? Synonymously. Um, and so that's the paradox the paper kind of tries to disentangle. It says, okay, what do we do with law, property law that's built around this edifice of ownership, exclusion, possession, um, if we think that those things don't actually maximize subjective well-being? That's the puzzle. And and so part of the paper is like is supporting that premise, right? That right. You know, so you're bringing in all kinds of evidence that you've written about before, and others have written about as well about uh, about what actually makes people happier. Or right. uh, and then there are a couple of different ways that people measure that, and you go into that in the paper. And then it's kind of like the the second half of the paper is concerned with some some ways that some specific ways we might be able to change the law related both to the tax code and the sharing economy that might um, uh, th- that might advance that project. Yeah. So um, I think I, I think what this paper was, this is a, this is a companion piece to a paper I had before, um, which is sort of the negative iteration of it. And it's just called buying happiness, right? And the idea is, um, you know, in the first instance, you know, uh, if, if acquiring property doesn't make people better off, what should law do about it? Right. This is a slightly different paper that says once property is more about, you know, possession than I think it is about acquisition. And the idea is, look, um, you know, if, possessing property and amassing it doesn't necessarily make us better off. What do we do with that? And so I was playing around with these different ideas, the sharing economy, charitable um, donation, um, this sort of new notion of minimalism, which is related to the very ancient notion of abandonment. And I was trying to find a thread that linked them all together. And that's, that's the last thing that I came up with when I was writing this was the idea of linking these together as the sort of converse of the traditional property notions of possession and exclusion because they are in, in different ways about inclusion or dispossession, right? Sharing, the sharing economy was what I call a strategy of inclusion, right? Not like you keep everybody out of your, your place, right? But you invite people in to share in what you have. And then charitable donation or minimalism, right? Which is this sort of Marie Kondo and others notion that you're better off when you get rid of your stuff um, is the opposite of the possession strategy. It's a dispossession strategy. And then the, the, the twist, of course, is that, you know, this would be a very, um, a very quick and I think not a very interesting paper if you said, oh, I get it. Right. So if the idea of, um, you know, property rights is, is facilitating people's lower subjective well-being, then I know the solution. Let's just slash back property rights or get rid of the idea altogether. But what I think makes it a harder but I think a more interesting project is that all of the evidence that points to a connection between inclusion or dispossession and higher subjective well-being presumes that people are voluntarily opting into that, right? So the idea is it's really about how we can subtly uh, change choice architecture or otherwise you know, move or incentivize people to exercise their property rights in ways that are likely to increase their subjective well-being. And 
you know, to sort of presage the suggestion that this is a weird thing for the state to be doing. Hmm. You kind of, you know, try to get people to use their property in a way that's going to maximize their subjective well-being. Man, the state does this all the time. All the right? time, I yeah. Mean, it, it, all the time. It's, it's impossible for it not to, right? From the um, mortgage tax deduction, which is more of subject of the other paper, to the charitable donation, um, tax exemption, to how, how it is going to build the regulation of the sharing economy from the ground up. It, it can't get away from the idea that if you know, we think there's a relationship between, or if we think law should pay attention to the idea of subjective well-being as a guiding principle when it constructs policies or, or, or positive law, or you know, when judges create um, you know common law rules, then you know this is an inevitable question that we have to engage. So one step you you had to take was di- was separating the strands of. Um, you know, using uh, ability to pay and and uh, preference satisfaction, yeah. like unwinding that away from just is this making you happier right now or not? Right. And, and we were using the other to get to the the second one um, because we felt we sort of had to. Yeah. Right? The the notion of of you know on a frequent basis um asking someone is this making you happy right now that just sort of seems ungainly and weird um but there have been w- ways have been accomplished to conduct that kind of hedonics assessment in in a research setting that have led to you know reasonably robust results is that absolutely so so this is um using different the- using different measures i mean as you point out like whether you ask people to reflect on whether they have a happy life or you measure it in the instant like or, or those both. are very, I mean, those are very different ways of doing it and you you favor i think the um the measuring in the instant at least you argue in the paper but you say it doesn't matter because however you do it it kind of points in the same direction along these questions at least yeah so um so to go all the way back you know i should i should probably mention that um, everything that I write in this part one of the paper, like I love the subject and I think it's endlessly interesting, but um, very, very little of what I spent, very little might be an exaggeration. Possibly none of what I say in that first part is original to me, right? It's just a collection of, you know, research uh, that others have done on initially just the sort of the social science of happiness and, you know, beginning with uh, Kahneman and, and Layard and a lot of other social scientists who kind of developed these early measures but the, the genesis of this, and the thing I think is really interesting, is that when Bentham developed his notion of utilitarianism, he was the sort of earliest person to embrace the idea of happiness or subjective well-being as the criterion for utilitarianism or for welfare, right? Because if you don't agree on what welfare means, you, don't re- you can't really have a coherent conversation about what the greatest good for the greatest number is. And then for centuries after that, you know, it was very hard to operationalize Benthamite, you know, welfare calculus because you you couldn't get to what people's subjective mental state was. So it was thought to be this kind of elusive and impossible thing to measure. And that's what led people to advert to this alternate way of assessing welfare, which is called preferencism. People are better off when they can sort of realize their preferences. And the flip side of that is that revealed preferences are the best measure of um one's subjective well-being. Now, I go in, there's a lot of reasons I, you know, there's, there's a huge debate. And I, my understanding is that with, at least within the kind of moral philosophy literature, preferentism is still king, that people still think that's the best measure of welfare. Um, but I, I just think it's nuts for a lot of reasons, you know, I mean, <laughs> to, without going into it. I mean, one thing is, 
it, it, it rose up as a second best proxy to measure something that we now have a good measure for. So it's just puzzling to me that we would still use the proxy when we have the thing. And to your second point, yeah, like it's starting in the 1990s, now it's probably too, um, too recent, maybe in the, the 80s and before, um, you know, the same folks who were kind of interested in behavioralism also began to develop rigorous, you know, replicable ways to determine whether or not certain events uh, or practices increased or decreased subjective well-being. And which is to say the essential thing that Bentham posited as the criterion for welfare hundreds of years ago that was kind of abandoned um, and replaced by preferentism in the late 1800s. And in the intervening you know, 40 odd years, um, we the, the evidence appears to be consistent and reliable enough that we can say that we can make broad predictions and conclusions about what kinds of behaviors tend to increase happiness more than others. And to the particular point about what that means, and the interesting thing for me is also, I also want to, I like the word happiness. I think that accurately describes what we're talking about, but it does kind of elide a lot of distinctions. And this is kind of third rail. Like a lot, when I describe what I mean by happiness, what I mean in the paper, um, and Christian, I think this is what you're getting at, is your subjective mental state at any given time, which is your affective happiness. So if, and, and the trick of course, is that's somehow weird to people. Like I have a lot of people who just have a visceral distaste for that. They're saying, right, so right. if you're, if you're giving, if you're working at a soup kitchen for the poor and you're like helping starving people, but you're unhappy versus if you're sitting on the couch, like stuffing your face with Oreos and, and rewatching Breaking Bad for the 13th time, but you're really, really like that. That's a better thing to do. And my answer to that is, I don't know what better means, um, but subjectively, it, it seems to me that it has to be true that you are experiencing a higher welfare state, regardless of the thing you're doing, if you're experiencing it. And to sort of move this back to the paper, um, I, I get why that's just unsatisfying, right? Because it suggests that we should all be selfish slugs who just mm -hmm. engage in the basest kind of um, you know, self-gratification. But the, the, the cool thing about the literature is that it's shown that that hypothetical doesn't match with the evidence and that the things that are selfless or other-oriented um, that we do tend to increase our subjective well-being, even on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, um, more than something like, you know, pure self, um, self, uh, gratification. So whenever like, you know, one paradox or one hypothetical, a lot of people throw out to folks who talk about happiness is they're saying, so, so, you know, if I'm, if I'm happiest, you know, when I'm like hypothetically a person who's a drug addict and they, all they do is pump themselves full of heroin, that person is the happiest person around. And I'm like, well, first, if that were true, then sure, right? But the evidence actually shows that some of the unhappiest people, the most miserable people, are those who are addicted to illegal drugs, right? So the, the concerns that people have about what this means, about how it should, what it should reward, or the kind of behavior it would incentivize, turn out to kind of match up with a pretty decent um, an appealing view of what we would kind of ideally like people to do. And, and there's just some difficulty in capturing you know, the concept, even if we're just looking at instantaneous satisfaction, how do you, you know, I imagine like this, uh, I imagine this like sinusoidal type curve of happiness over time. And 
there are a whole bunch of different measures you can make over of that curve. You know, you can ask someone looking back, you know, how did you feel about that? And, and that's kind of the, the way that you criticize. But you could, you know, you could integrate that curve to see the area under the curve and say, well, overall, how happy has this person been, which is a way of adding up all of these instantaneous moments. But you're just ne- maybe, you know, you're never going to be able to, I think, to get around the fact that, um, that, that you know, the, the, the kind of criticisms people have of certain kinds of happiness are normative, yeah. right? And and so that that kind of normativity that you bring with your evaluation of someone else's sinusoidal curve, I just don't know that you're ever going to be able to get around that, right? And part of that normativity, it seems to me, is is uh, relates to um, you know if we thought that a particular individual's happiness put someone else's well being at risk. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we're if we're talking about some, you know, mob of sadists running toward us, right. well, unless we're masochists, we might have an objection. Right. So yeah. they're um, of just letting people do what makes them happy. Um, so you do have to put some some there's sort of some parameters within which you're having the conversation about the fact that it seems to make to be sensible to say that what government should do when it's establishing laws is to try to make people better off for some understanding of that sentence that corresponds to our lived reality. Um, yeah. Where better off includes happiness uh, in the ways that we could assess it, um, whether we want to stick with older preference satisfaction things or other measures is an interesting conversation to have. But it's still within the realm of saying, yeah, what we're trying to do is we're trying to say the things we accomplish in our in our social life together, including our government, is to make people better, make our, make our lives better to live. And to, and to track back to the to the really original part of the paper, what you suggest is not getting rid of exclusion as a means, but um, acquisition as an end, right? And that exclusion as a means is a way of, of recognizing control. And in fact, what the studies show, at least some of the studies that you look at, is that exercising that control in the interest of dispossessing and including is a way of increasing happiness, but that the control is critical, Right. So property as yeah. control rather than property as, you know, possession in a in a in a um, in a broad sense, it, it seems more important to your story. Yeah. If I seem distracted, it's because I'm writing down the first thing you said, not exclusion as a means, but acquisition as an end. I, I like that. Um, and and yeah, and I think that's right. And I think, you know, this is an idea that goes all the way back to, to what Aristotle said about property. Right. He said, look, it. Property should inspire us to be more generous, right? But what, it, what the reason why he advocated ownership was he had this kind of idealized notion that when people owned things, they would be magnanimous with it, right? That they wouldn't, um, if I can do political, like do the kinds of things that I, I think are increasingly lionized in modern America, right? Keep their stuff, um, you know, make sure they keep getting more of it, you know, keep it all exclusively um, within their family, but sort of share it broadly with others to make the others' lives um, better off. And in one way to think about this paper is it's the selfish taste for generosity, right? Because it's right. not coming down on people in sort of this kind of moralistic way and saying you, it, is, it is wrong for you to keep your stuff. It's saying, hey, if, if you're truly selfish, which is to say if the thing that you want is to maximize your own subjective sense of being you know, happy at any time – the citizen Kane approach is your worst road of getting hmm. there, right? You would be, and 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 the thing is, we we know this because there's all those iconic 
um, you know, uh, examples in, in popular culture of people who have an obscene amount of stuff, but we kind of understand that they're also miserable individuals, right? Citizen Kane, Mr. Burns, others. Um, Donald and, Trump. Although actually, people contested that. They're like, Mr. Burns seems pretty, pretty happy. And I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I needed to draw back on that and sort of rewatch some Simpsons to see if that's an accurate. <laughs> I, I see that. So, so Burns as a character in The Simpsons, and, and I, I watched The Simpsons kind of early on, but I'm not one who's like a completist uh, um, yeah. in, in any sense. But But maybe this is worth thinking about just a minute because he seems as though he's someone for whom the concept of happiness is irrelevant. You know, maybe happiness is not a mind-independent concept, at least as it relates to art. I don't know, maybe maybe it is with um, uh, with, with real people. But he does, I'm just thinking back just now to the the episodes featuring him, and it's like, is he happy? I don't know that, that it, it seems like a category error to ask about that particular person, right? He he just is. He is, he is and this is what I was going to bring up earlier. He he seems in many ways like the, um, in, in, um, uh, a- Asian mythology and in, in Buddhist um, traditions, the hungry ghost, right? This this person who does it, it's it's not about happiness. It is about trying. It's it's about trying and failing to eat the world, right? Uh, <laughs> right. And, and I heard that. It, it, so yeah, the, I mean the, the the hungry ghost, like this image that I've heard about, is like it's like a teardrop or uh, where, with like this huge, massive, unfillable stomach and this like pinhole sized mouth, right? And it just. You, you could, and, and yet the uh, the unyielding desire to to fill the stomach, um, and Burns seems a little bit like that, right? You could argue um, that um, there was that great article by I think it was Rebecca Solnit. I may be getting her name wrong, but um, Trump is a hungry ghost. Yeah. There have been some think pieces about James Bond as a hungry ghost. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, so um, so I get a lot of what I was thinking about when I was reading this piece is like how property, just like many other areas of law isn't just responsive to our behaviors, right? But it actually, you know, this is the typical kind of, um, uh, 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 maybe this is the crit in me, but also it influences our behaviors, yeah. right? So there's this constant feedback loop, right? And um, societies with law, as with other areas of culture, evolve in certain directions. And I don't mean to say evolve as in ascending toward a better state necessarily, but they change. It seems to me, even if, even if you, even if there are individuals who are especially recalcitrant in their, vera- in their, in the voraciousness with which they consume and want to possess and want to exclude, um, it seems to me you can't, you can't make the legal rules centrally about those persons, right? Mm. Because if that's not how most people experience the world and, and, and generate happiness for themselves, then it would be foolish to spend all your effort dealing with that person, right? Because right. they're not how, yeah. they're not how most of it's not going to help most of us. And we should be doing things that help a great many people, except to the extent they're exploiting some kind of bug in the system, right? Which will oh, which that will, right, which will to be on your guard against. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, that's yeah, a yeah, series yeah. of questions I actually have for Dave about this that about things that aren't in the paper at all that I hope oh. we can get to. But okay, but because I think that is a real concern, right? Right. Um, the but but if you're talking about what 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 social practices the legal rules should sort of buttress and and support i think you you ought to focus on what people are typically like not what what some person is atypically like yeah um so that's that's really interesting because you you correctly i think read the paper um, to make this assumption that in the paper, I, I do assume that that is fairly typical. And I think that's maybe because 
I was writing in like early 2017, you know, right <laughs> after the 2016 election at a time where like late, late capitalism and like the sort of like the, the worry I have this is, this is weird and kind of off topic is that like, you know, this is sort of like America is this, this country that is slowly, slowly bearing this momentum toward um, a kind of weird income inequality where, you know, super rich people starting the 80s with like finance reform are getting ever super richer and everyone else is marginalized. And that's just not a sustainable um, way to go. But the, the paradox of it, of course, and the thing that frustrated me is it it seemed like even people who were on the outside still had the same kind of mindset, right? That even if you were not one of the, the rich, right, you were Joe the plumber, this guy who believed that even though he was just like a regular dude, the next week he was going to finally make a million with his small business, which as, as we know, in his case, um, you know, never happened. So yeah, it is. So, so one, yes, it is an assumption of the paper that I think I'm kind of saying that at least in America, this hungry ghost, right, is kind of more of an ideal than I think it should be. But the second point is, uh, and then the second thing is, is that constructed by the way our law is? Well, I think kind of yes, right? Although the answer to that might be, our law is pretty much uh, an available default, right? It's not forcing anyone to own anything, really. I mean, in the other earlier paper, I point out a few instances where law pushes people toward acquisition, at least provides incentives toward it. And you could say any time that the law secures rights in something, it kind of makes that thing more desirable. So the mere fact that property exists as an institution kind of pushes people in that direction too. But hey, if you want to be a Marie Kondo slash minimalist style person, there's nothing stopping you, right? I mean, you, you can opt out of this system completely. You can give away your stuff. Um, you know, I think that, you know, cultural pressure, notwithstanding, um, you know, those, those choices are still perfectly available. Um, and I think that the, no, the, whatever I observed and, you know, sort of in my own experience that comes through in the paper about what, um, posture Americans have toward wealth and property is, is as much a product of cultural norms as it is law, which I think is, you know, maybe, and I, I do this in the paper, right? The first paragraph is more about like how, you know, cultural norms seem to idealize this sort of witless, you know, acquisition for acquisition's sake, right? This sort of frenzied, um, almost like pathological desire just to get more and bigger stuff. Like those TV shows where people just seem like they're in a constant frenzy of like Robinson Crusoe style bourgeois acquisition, right? Like that one where the, the, the people are constantly just remaking houses for no other reason than to make money, right? It's just this like bizarre frenzy yeah. or hoarding, right? Which is like a, a pathology. And then there's this um, great New York Times article about how one of the biggest growth industries in the U.S. is um, – uh, security, not security, but uh, storage units, you know, and that even though houses are getting bigger and garages are massive, people are filling up their garages with all this useless crap and then they're full and so they have to go buy <laughs> people with like, you know, these gigantic McMansions with like four car garages have no, don't have enough space so they have to buy these gigantic storage units, right? It almost seems like I guess I thought of this as like a uniquely American pathology and the thing against which a lot of these folks um I keep mentioning Marie Kondo, although, you know, she's, she's from Japan, but there's these American movements in favor of minimalism as well. And although I, I couldn't honestly like finish that, that movie by the guys, um, the Netflix movie um, by the guys, two guys who do the minimalist movement, mm. um, 
I, I, I think there's something very um, appealing in that about just the, the fact of, of sort of stripping down possessions as a way to simplify your life. Now, the, the $10,000 question is I'm writing this paper, right? I get done with this first part um, and I'm unwilling to sort of move away from the idea that we need property as sort of a baseline edifice for how we organize the idea of possession. And I think, as, as Christian noted, it, you know, you, you, the literature also says that these have to be sort of voluntary choices in the direction of dispossession or inclusion for them to be meaningful from a subjective well-being perspective, which means that they depend on um, there being a positive law of property and, and protection of the basic incidence of property as a right. So I think what the paper ends up becoming is, you know, a combination of kind of more policy-like suggestions for how the law could approach the ways in which it governs our possession slightly differently that kind of gently nudge it in the direction of more subjective well-being. Because so, yeah. Can. Um, uh, yeah. Can I interrupt for a second? So, so oh, yeah, 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 I, no, I just wanted to um, um, make sure that we hit a couple of the concrete points that you made about that charitable tax yeah. deductions and, and maybe, maybe um, uh, home mortgage interest deduction uh, there's also lots of interesting stuff about the sharing economy in here. And by sharing economy, we've thrown that word around a few times. So I just want to make sure that listeners know we're talking about things like uh, Airbnb, uh, Uber. Couchsurfing. Um, yeah. And then there's the um, uh, TaskRabbit. So a lot of these, these are, I heard a fascinating talk at this conference I mentioned last time, Winnie, or the institution's talk by um, – what's her name? I, I, I actually pulled it up about um, – uh, the kind of the subjective well-being people who uh, of people who participate. It's uh, Juliet Shore at um, – at Boston College, and she's actually gone out and like studied empirically, you know, how happy people are who participate in these economies, and it has a lot to do with why they're participating, right? And you know, if there were some universal basic income, and so they were just doing it for, um, you know, extra, they would they would feel better about it anyway. So it, maybe we can talk more about it, but um, but about the uh, the charitable deduction, it, it, your suggestion is that by giving people a deduction for it, right? It, it it kind of works against the altruism that might otherwise be motivating, or, or at least I might think of as motivating uh, my desire to give to charity. And maybe a better approach, uh, which would still respect kind of the control of property and, and, and give kind of the hedonic benefit of exercising that control on behalf of others, would be for government to match your contribution. So you would still pay tax on it, but um, and economically, it could work out exactly the same if you do the numbers exactly right, right? So I donate $100 to a certain charity, and government matches that by kicking in an extra 15 or, or even 20 um, Right now, I donate 100 and I write it off on my taxes, and therefore I save a certain amount in a tax payment I otherwise would have made had I spent that $100 on other kinds of consumables. Which, which is a tax expenditure. Like the, yeah. the, the giving you that deduction is a spending of tax revenue that otherwise could have been raised, which is how a match could wind up being the same. Right? Exactly the same. But yeah. al- although now an organization is getting more money, it's getting mine and it's also getting the kick in. True. But match. like from a, from a rational perspective, if everybody were just thinking of this in terms of like uh, ledgers, right, then the fact that I'm that government is matching rather than giving me uh, the break means that um, I'm going to give a little bit less, right? So maybe I would have given 115 if I could it, have written it all off. It maybe, but but I think the insight of of Dave's thinking of this in hedonic terms, yes. and the internal motivation is to say, actually, you might not give it less. Ex- you you might give more because now your your internal motivation isn't being crowded out by this alternative That's explanation. Exactly because we are not like we are not like ledgers, right? We are right, not right. Uh, calculating machines. Rather, and this is the thing. You know, I don't know how much you've read about like the uh, emerging theory 
theories of consciousness and the fact that we might have all kinds of different competing modes happening in our brain. You can overstate mm-hmm. this quite easily. But um, as a kid, I always thought this was weird when I when I first heard about the ta- charitable tax deduction and people would talk about giving to charity and they would be talking about tax deduction. They'd be like, wait a minute, you're 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 giving money to charity. This seems like a good thing that you're doing, and you're talking about it in terms of what you're going to get, right? And you know, as a kid, I didn't understand economics. I didn't understand all of these things. But I think that kid had a certain kind of insight, right? That <laughs> right. That, that 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 talking about deduction and 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 kind of steeping in that rhetoric um, uh, activates a certain kind of mode in the brain. Perhaps I mean this is a this is kind of what you plug into that that we might yeah. be. Uh, we might feel better off if instead we felt like we were in partnership with the government in making someone else better off than if the government were kind of compensating me for having done a good thing, in which case it was – which is kind of offsetting the good act that I'm doing by some selfish receipt that I have uh, coming from the government. Like even though those could be economically exactly the same if you do the numbers right, um, in fact, um, people will be happier if we do it you know, the, the government matching way rather than the, rather than the, uh, tax benefit way. I mean, how, how robust do you think that is? How, what kind of studies do we need to do to figure that out? Yeah. Well, we need somebody who is better at math than I am because, um, (laughs) I, but I think, I think in a way, but when that person looks at this, I think there's an easy point at which you could say, okay, like consider the following factors, right? The extent to which people might give somewhat less, although I don't think um, you know, as, as much less as the government is necessarily matching, right? Um, give, giving a little bit less when they perceive a match in the mix, right? How this affects tax expenditures on the government side, how this affects, um, you know, and then the huge upside that it would, it would have for, in, you know, well, some upside for uh, recipients of charitable donations. I think you can come to a place where from a, a giving and expenditure perspective, it's a wash. And if you can get to that place, then I think it's an easy case that it's better because you would avoid what we've been talking about in different terms, I would say, are the sort of costly framing effects of the charitable deduction, which says, you know, and, and, and I share your instinct about it being a paradox. It says, hey, guess what? Be nice to people because it's going to put a little extra money in your pocket when tax time rolls around, right? And I, I'm with you completely on what appears to be, you know, pretty good evidence that people have one of two mindsets when it comes to almost any action they take. Right. People are either thinking in terms of collaboration or competition, you know, which is why if you go to a restaurant and, you know, you leave without paying, you're in trouble. Right. But if you go to a friend's house for dinner and you say, OK, well, I enjoyed this dinner, I would estimate its cost at about fifty dollars to you. So here you go. Right. You'll lose a friend. Because different kinds of different kinds of um, you know acts you know acts and, and, and motivations and, and behaviors make sense in different kinds of social settings, right? So once you and I think the evidence is pretty good that once you begin to cause people to think in terms of money and their own self interest, just a, a drop of that thinking affects their entire approach to it. Have you thought about this, Dave, in the context of um, of regulatory takings law? Because you know when I um, when when I teach regulatory takings and and kind of go th- go through um, uh, the um, you know kind of the Michaelman paradigm of of settlement costs et cetera and, mm-hmm. and wh- why we would compensate or not compensate one one thing that I ask the students to do is is to think about you're in, you're in a group of friends you always go out to dinner one way of accomplishing you know maybe there are ten fifteen of you so it's a lot of you one thing you could do at the end of the dinner um, is to 
get the receipt and get out calculators and figure out exactly who owes what and you each pay exactly your fair share, right? Another way to do it is one person gets it one week, another person gets it another week, and another Mm -hmm. person gets it another week, right? And that latter way is... um, um, well, it, it's sloppier in the sense that, you know, maybe we're going to get some a slightly more expensive dinner this week and a slightly less the next week. And then that and maybe I didn't eat as much as the others. So there's always that potential for unfairness and and a kind of a wedge to be driven through the solidarity of the group because of that perceived unfairness. On the other hand, it saves a lot of trouble and it promotes a kind of solidarity as well that we're we're not, the you know, we're all in this together and we're just kind of sharing as as we go along. And, and one thing this does is that it, uh, this exercise um, can do is it kind of pushes on this instinct that you have that if our group is used to going out to, say, you know, McDonald's and Wendy's and Taco Bell each week, and then one weekend we go to Danielle in New York, right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that the person stuck with the bill that week, has there's some dramatic unfairness that's been done to that person, right? right. And, and that's a situation where we might want to depart from the rule. So a, a meritorious regulatory takings claim in your in this hypo is the dinner at Danielle. Yeah, one that departs from the reference yeah. transaction to use kind of Joel Sunstein Thaler. Where normally it seems like we're just it's the benefits and burdens, and there being there, there's sort of a reciprocity of advantage if we're roughly yeah. going to the same sort of restaurant week in and week out. And this weird departure now means well that that usual way of handling things seems like we're visiting a really difficult problem on a single party. In right. a case where this really is something that rather than visiting it only on that one party, we re- this is something we all need to bear together. So let's get out our calculators and do Right, the bill. in that right. case. But in, but in the normal case, you know, we are all in this together and we will, you know, I'll get it this week, you get it next week. And, and that kind of binds us together in a way. And I, I forgot <laughs> – I actually forgot why I brought this up. Yeah, well, how does this link back to the tax um, – like doing the doing the charitable giving and saying – to not mix in the motivation of oh I'm I'm just trying to advantage myself here by getting a deduction rather than focusing oh, something on something Dave said that kind of kicked of this off in my mind I'm going to listen to it back and I'm going to I'm kicking myself because I can't and uh, boy this is embarrassing oh well I lost if you think it. of it let us know <laughs> Dave what were you talking yeah. about right before I interrupted I, you like maybe you can ask your listeners if they if they knew where you were going because I have to admit I don't I'm still I'm still in suspense though like I want to figure it out but like you know it was, <laughs> I have to play right there I'd right have to there, play back but, the, it was yeah. too it was like I had to go through too many steps and I'd have to play back the tape at this point <laughs> um I mean it, it is this um I mean the, the the upshot is that there is this trade-off right between kind of individual precise fairness and and kind of like you know, the kind of sloppiness of having to, you know, be treated a little bit unfairly in any given situation is part of the cost of civilization, um, part of the cost of living together. But I don't remember, <laughs> I actually don't yeah. remember what it was that kind of triggered that thought. So my apologies. Uh, so what, it, what it reminds me of, I thought you were going for, well, is that paper I wrote about uh, waiting in line, which suggests that, you know, people are, are really surprisingly good at collaboration and will bear some like small costs of inconvenience as long as they feel as though they're being treated fairly. Yeah. But, and there's evidence of this from the ultimatum game experiments too. As soon as somebody defects, which is to say, doesn't play by the rules and screws them over and grabs more than the sort of, they would be entitled to the entire informal, um, system of, of like, you know, falls apart, right? In other words, one, one person cuts in line and, you know, people, if he, he doesn't get sanctioned out of the line, man, it's going to become a mob. Um, and that's because he's taking something that, that is not his in a system where everyone has agreed, I'll take a little bit of a roughly equal hit 
so this whole thing works together. Right. That's a that's a it's a promising thing, but it's it's a fragile system, too. So that equilibrium of of sort of, again, we're, we're all willing to engage in a certain we we know there's an imposition here, but we also know there's a benefit for everybody. And that uh, ability to engage in that with everyone else is a that equilibrium is a fragile equilibrium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's and I think it, it, the one of the way it relates back to to um, what I think Kristen was saying is it suggests that people are in this kind of collaborative mindset. Right. Um, everybody's getting along. It's like going to dinner at somebody's house. Right. He's happy to like pay the price to like cook dinner for everybody. But then all of a sudden somebody breaks, um, breaks the spell and they introduce their own purely self-interested um, you know, other disregarding norms. And they say, I'm going to get mine and, and screw you guys. Right. Yeah. And all of a sudden, um, that means that that one, that one note of selfishness in an otherwise collaborative environment affects the entire enterprise. And, and it, might, it that, might've been, it might've been that, that dinner example that kicked this off in my mind, right. That, that thinking about your relationship with others transactionally, Right. As yeah. you know, it, it, in terms of like, I'm going to pay for exactly what I get. And mm-hmm. our experience is nothing more than the sum total of what we each put into this transaction. Right. Whereas the, when that get, isn't when that isn't the way most people are framing what's happening. And right. you do frame it that way. You you, you are the turd everyone around you. You're the turd the bunch Yeah, you kind of flip. Well, you flip them into your frame. Yeah, you do. You do. Yes, I mean, because because then, like, people don't want to be the sucker or the chump. And and right. yeah. part of the cost of society is you have to let you have to be a chump for some people. Otherwise, it turns into a nightmare. But uh, but what I was going to say though is that um, I get it this time. You get it next time. Uh, you know, that's a way of like each of us sharing kind of the the donative moment. Right. Where, you know, I get all the happiness of taking all my friends out to dinner, but without yeah. without the burden of, of uh, you know, of, of living beyond my means. Right. Like, yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah. We, in a way, you could think of it as sharing the burden. But your paper makes me think of that example as more of sharing the benefit. Right. Of sharing the Absolutely. hedonic benefit of, of, Absolutely. of that experience of taking right? people out. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. we have like, you know, Jessica and I will have like a couple that we will, we'll, you know, go out to dinner with. And instead of splitting the check, you know, you could just alternate paying every time. And I think then it roughly equals out, assuming that you don't go from Chick-fil-A to like <laughs> Alinea. Right. And um, but then you get the additional um, the additional hedonic boost of doing something generous for the other uh, couple of people every time you go out. Right. Even though it's a little bit of an artifice because, you know, that it's premised on the idea that there's a social contract. Um it's just a little, which is, which is also why I think, you know, people don't just give each other, do, do cash transfers on holidays, right? I mean, it's a little bit of an artifice, even giving people like a, um, a gift certificate. When you think about it, you know, that's, it's actually a worse gift to say, I'm going to give you 50 bucks, but you can only spend it one place. Well, right. then just give me money that I could spend any place. But <laughs> the idea that it's framed as a gift, which is to say that, there's some kind of, you know, gesture of generosity behind it, because maybe the fact that you chose to get them a gift certificate from thus and such store means that, you know, that's their preference, right? Adds, adds a hedonic boost to that gift that wouldn't be there if you just said, hey, look, you're, you're, you're worth about 50 bucks at Christmas to me. You know, here's <laughs> five tens in an envelope, right? Like it, that just, This is why I like the cynical observation in both of those scenarios, the cynical observation of two people haggling over a check. No, I'm going to get it. No, you get it. It's like, you know, this is, it sounds like the socially tiresome scenario where people yeah. are, are being fake, but they aren't always fake. Like when I argue with people over the bill, like I do feel uh, uh, all the time, actually, that I'm actually having an argument. Like I want 
you know, and it feels a little bit selfish. Like I want to be able to treat you. Like I want that hedonic right. boost. If I, if I'm honest with myself, like mm. I, I'm probably, you know, I, I want that because I want to give right in that scenario because it is about friendship. And in the, and so you observe the same, maybe you could observe cynically also the, you know, person opening a gift, which is a $50 gift certificate to, it could even be Amazon, right? Which is almost mm-hmm. like cash, right? Yeah. Uh, and the person expressing some, oh, thank you, where it's, it's, as you say, it's clearly that what the person has done is taken their $50, diminished it in value, and then transferred it to the other person, right? <laughs> right, uh, right, right. And, and so, uh, you know, a, a, a kind of an, an Android looking at this would say, you know, what the heck is going on? Well, unless it's one of these sophisticated Androids, which is going to take all of our jobs and 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 lead to crisis uh, right. but um and fortunately because of last week's episode we get to take out back and beat up if it does sound <laughs> crazy um <laughs> talk about hedonic benefits right? right we talked to christina mulligan last week about her oh, paper right. on beating up robots um so i have not heard of this paper it sounds fantastic it really is very interesting and in many ways is has some th- there are some um interesting threads uh, in at least in my mind connecting her, uh, her paper and your paper, uh, it, because so much of this is about is about if you if you flip your perspective and start asking just quite directly about what makes people happy and what the law should support, and and then of course you'll also get to some second and third order questions about some dangers that might arise if you indulge the fact that that's what makes people happy and therefore that's what perhaps the law should support. Um, I think it can take you to some really interesting places. And I think her her project is one of those interesting places. Um, and yours is another uh, where you, you wind up, uh, uh, for example, your your suggestion about the up for grabs kind of digital yeah. swap meet kind of idea um, uh, is like that's the sort of thing that I think focusing directly on property related facets of the fact that dispossession can be a happiness generating act. Um, and of course it presupposes possession because you had to own it before you could give it away. Um, and right. so in that way, it's not an attack on ownership. It's, it's frankly just another facet of ownership. But Joe, you've highlighted another way that, that this is a slightly different reason that you might have for dispossession, which actually I think doesn't rely on this um, kind of post-Blacksonian Blackstonian view of control as, as generating property. Like this is property maybe where you wish you had never acquired it, right? And so mm-hmm. when you yep. get rid of it, you feel good whether or not the law would have made you get rid of it anyway, right? So there's some, whereas the, you know, um, uh, giving a charitable gift feels good precisely because you didn't have to do it, right? And, and it felt like a volitional act. Whereas you know, getting rid of uh, some stuff which is taking up too much space and is and is occupying your thoughts too much, and you're too attached to it. Getting rid of it just feels good. Well, that could, regardless look, that could of be, your control over it, that could be that. Like one reason why you might give it up is because you realize it it wasn't a prudent choice in the past. You probably shouldn't. You could have done without it. Or even you, if it was, it's really no longer it. a prudent choice to maintain. Well, that, and that's my. Yeah. And, the, and I was going to say, you know, a very different thing could be you, you really you did need it. You really enjoyed it. You no longer need it, but but you know quite well how good it could be to right. have it because and, you enjoyed having right. it. And so all you, I'm suggesting here is that is that is that abandoning that property at that point, right, brings happiness, irrespective of the law's recognition of your right to control it at that point. You just want to. You're just happy to be rid of it, yeah. wh- however you came to that point of view. Whereas with charity, it does seem different, and that's why I wanted to. Br- the other one I wanted to bring up mm. was the um, 
was the um, home mortgage interest deduction, uh, which encourages people to acquire homes. And, and one thing you suggest is maybe maybe getting rid of that um, yeah. and, and as encouraging a move toward tiny homes or shared spaces. And, 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 and that does seem like a very different kind of impulse, right? It's like it's, it's trying to indulge a, a, a new kind of preference or, or state of mind which doesn't seek to acquire this kind of property. It doesn't seek control. In fact, control is the enemy, right? Like if I have a, if I have a big house and I have a bunch of stuff in it, I may have been happy when I acquired that stuff as, as you know, Joe's story goes with, with some things that you may want to get rid of eventually. Um, but like I'm constantly thinking about these things. I'm thinking about whether they're going to break. I'm thinking about whether it was a good idea. I'm thinking about how I'm going to have to move it eventually or how when I die, my kids are going to have to go through it and get rid of it. And it's it just like I wish I could just be done with it. But but I don't want to spend a whole day going through the garage and sorting the stuff I don't need. Like it's just I, <laughs> if someone could just take all this away, it would be better. Right. And so my impulse toward dispossession there or towards trimming down and having a tiny house or having a, a shared space is one which doesn't seem to rely, you know, that would bring a kind of happiness which doesn't seem to rely on my ever having been able to control those things in the first instance. Is that, is that, I don't remember that, I remember you're talking about both of these in the paper, both of these kinds of um, uh, uh, um, legal changes or legal nudges that could make people happier with respect to property, but I don't know that you observe that kind of distinction. Yeah, I think that's right. So if I, and I haven't thought of distinguishing though, making that distinction, but I, I like it, right? Um, and maybe the idea is that, you know, there are a lot of instincts we have about ownership that are purely exogenous to law, right? We're going to want to buy houses, you know, because people have been creating shelter for centuries. Like once we have a bunch of stuff built up, we might have an intuition that it's a big waste of time and space and we want to dump it off, right? Um, these, and, and, you know, some of our intuitions, I think, lead us to greater happiness and some of them don't, right? I think that our intuition toward, you know, being a hungry ghost and wanting to get a bigger and and better and fancier house is probably paradoxically not going to make us better off. And that's most of what I, that's, that's the subject matter of the previous paper, buying happiness. Um, I think to whatever extent we have an impulse to get rid of or downsize or downscale our property, that tends to be something that's going to make us happier. So one thing I think about this paper is that it kind of has to be cabined by those pre-existing intuitions um, that we're going to have about property anyway. And then it has to encourage them to, you know, encourage the state to kind of manage them in a way that is going to optimize people's well-being. So to take the case of abandonment, yeah, sure. You know, although you see less and less of it, people seem to be like holding on to stuff. There's definitely an intuition that when you have too much stuff, you just want to get rid of it. And you see abandonment cases like this where somebody just, you know, throws a bunch of stuff away. Um, and, you know, the question is like, you know, is it is it like a valid act of abandonment? You know, can you force them to take it back if they dump off a bunch of their stuff in like a field or something like that? And, and you um, point to this research by uh, or this uh, paper by Lihor Strahilovitz uh, about, yeah. you know, maybe if it has positive market value, you should be able to abandon it. And if it doesn't, then you shouldn't, which kind of taps into the idea that like you can't push your problems onto somebody else, but you should be able right. to push things which would be of value to others. But like you point out that it, it's going to be kind of hard to figure out what's what there. Yeah, and it assumes, I mean, and I love that paper, um, and and Eduardo Peñalver has a really good paper about abandonment that came out at almost exactly the same time, and there's a a really surprising amount, like, dearth of writing about abandonment um, out there, like, just just those two papers, and then not a whole lot else. Um, 
so, but I think, you know, I, I like Lior's paper, but I think he's coming at it um, from more of the sort of tradition of neoclassical economics, where he's thinking just in terms of like price and social costs and stuff like that. And what I try to suggest in this paper is that when you kind of take this, the, the different iteration of, it's still a welfareist utilitarian calculus, right? But when you think about happiness, which is to say subjective well-being as your criterion for welfare, I think you can get some more interesting and promising results from um, abandonment doctrine, right? There might be instances where it's more of a, you can find more win-wins where something that doesn't have positive market value still might uh, result in a positive welfare change um, if, you know, under certain circumstances, if you think about welfare as happiness as opposed to just cost or price. So I want to, uh, I want to, um, and maybe this is another way to kind of connect the conversation to what what was on my mind last week with with um, Christina Mulligan's paper. But um, I, one issue I kept thinking about uh, as I was thinking, okay, so these these modes of inclusion um, in the sharing economy and and um, that sort of that part of the paper. I kept thinking to myself, hmm, if I take these insights of hedonics seriously and I and I recognize that there is a kind of greater happiness available to people who engage in more social interaction, more social connection and uh and by disintermediating or instead of going to a hotel, going to an Airbnb or or what have you, um, that that all makes sense, but to sort of take it in a <laughs> in a slightly less less happy direction, I guess. If you, um, I kept imagining, like, okay, does this mean that we should rethink the way we um, determine criminal punishments for wrongdoing in these settings? Right. So if if the thing that makes them better is they are more intimate and more social. And they therefore generate more happiness. It seems to me then that if someone predatorily wrongs another in the settings of these social interactions, um, they've done something that's more harmful and and more potentially devastating to their victim uh, than you know someone who runs a hotel and maybe the room isn't as good as they said it was. Okay. Yeah. Um, or even maybe. You know, they they run the hotel in a way that's a little dangerous, and someone slips and falls. Right? That's a wrong. Right. Um, but it's not. It seems like someone who and I and I hesitate to even describe the scenarios of criminality that I'm thinking about. But so, listener, just ima- <laughs> like imagine your own criminality. But but how would imagine we imagine your own criminality? Shouldn't huh? we? Shouldn't <laughs> we? Shouldn't we want to punish more severely? Someone who commits a wrong against another in these social, these more socially um, happiness generating transactions precisely because if someone does commit a wrong against you in that context, it's going to be more hurtful. Yeah. To the system? To that person and therefore to the system. Like once you start focusing on hedonics, it seems to me you have to focus on the the potential for greater unhappiness and kind of personal devastation – uh, along with yeah. focusing on this sounds the like a great this happiness. sounds like a great follow up paper in part because you could play it off against in the same way that 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 Dave is saying I think that um, 
one of the reasons we're getting some of these doctrines wrong is because is because property assumes something. Uh, uh, um, most property theories assume something that's not true about human beings. Or at right? least not true all the time. Right. Yeah. yeah right. And, and um, in a similar way, like I, I'm thinking like, off the top of my head, most most of law, including tort and and criminal law. Um, is less protective of wrongs committed in intimate situations than in stranger yeah. situations. When, when it, when arguably it should be the reverse. Now, well, I don't. Know, arguably, it should be the reverse in these in these scenarios in which people are associating through this kind of weird in between between a true intimate situation and one which is kind of market chosen. Like you're, like with Airbnb, you're choosing through a market to enter. A kind of intimate association where there's a lot of trust, which has to go into that, right? And right. and and I actually think yeah. you might you do, you might be descriptively incorrect in the sense that I think there are lots of instances in the criminal law and and maybe in 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 tort as well where being in a position of trust. Yes. In fact, I think that's the phrase, yeah. right? Yeah. Being in a position of trust is actually an aggravating factor. That's interesting. That's your yeah. So you're, you're, what you're pointing is, out, right, is that fiduciary settings imply heightened responsibilities and perhaps heightened penalties, whereas the, is there a difference between fiduciary and intimate, though? Because intimate, you know, like you maybe can, I'm trying to break down the distinction, right? Because we should let Dave react yeah, to what. Well, all right, all right. Like, yeah, why not? Since we have an expert <laughs> he on is here, here, he's a guest, <laughs> you know. Yeah, what do you think, Dave? So this is interesting, and I'm not a criminal law guy, but um, there are I'm a not couple either. interesting papers on hedonics in criminal law, and one of them makes a slightly related point, which is that we should calibrate criminal punishment. Um, based on the subjective experience of the perpetrator, right? So that, you know, if somebody is, um, you know, used to used to go into prison, you know, and it's not going to affect them that much, right? Uh, for whatever reason, if, if they would thrive in that environment, that would mean that they should get a longer sentence. But if somebody is going to be more affected by it, then maybe they should get a lighter sentence. And actually, I think that particular point made in the paper I'm thinking about, uh, which is by Bacafusco, Bronstein, and Mazur, is slightly different, which is that, the subjective experience of imprisonment changes over time so that it is horrible at the beginning, but less so as you go on. Oh, wow. So that what you should do is calibrate sentences to aggregate well-being, which means that a, a short sentence um, for a, a smaller crime might be disproportional to a long sentence for a worse crime because those back-end years of the sentence are really not going to be that bad. Um but both people would bear the same kind of suffering up front. That's that's the and same trio. That's the same trio that you cite for the um, well, for they wrote the those coo- book, the cooling off uh, point about um, civil suits, right? That right. that because civil right. litigation yeah. takes so you think that it's a detriment that civil litigation takes so long, but in fact, by, it's taking so long allows people to cool off to the point where they are willing to accept a more reasonable settlement. Is that yep. yeah? I mean, I remember that stuck out at me because I hadn't actually read that paper before, but it sounded fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a cool. And they also wrote they wrote the book called Happiness and Law, which sort of makes the the baseline case um, that I, I make a version of in the first part of this paper for why subjective well being or or moment by moment happiness should be the primary criterion by which we measure the appeal of, of, of any law, right? And the the one that you mentioned in the, the criminal law paper that I mentioned are just iterations of it. But to go all the way back to what I think was Joe's point. Um, that it, this seems like you're making the flip point, which is that if we are going to measure, if you think it's plausible to use this criterion, right? And if that means that, for example, we want to think about subjective well-being of those who are in prison when we're calibrating their punishments, 
then yeah, it seems to me that this would enter into how, well, at least it should be a factor, right? Because, you know, there are other, other considerations, you know, societal deterrence, whatever, uh, retribution, we think about criminal punishment, but it seems like to the extent that we just care about the impact on the victim and the severity of the crime as a factor in how we calibrate criminal punishment, that it has to be true that we take into account the subjective well-being and not just some kind of objective measure of how we normally think of how bad a given act is. Could that be and could that mean that, you know, intimate violence is 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 worse because it includes this element of personal betrayal? Maybe. Yeah. And, and the sharing economy raises like, you know, it, it's a it's a it, it, you start from a position of in of an informal market, but the market transaction creates a, a, um, a, or I guess, yeah, creates an intimate relationship like you're staying in somebody's house. Right. And, right. and, and yeah. well, and if that's part of what's generating the 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 greater level of happiness from engaging in that manner mm-hmm. of interaction right. with people, then it seems to me that that, yeah, if you if you violate that scenario, you're doing something worse. A person might very well experience it as worse. I suppose there's another reason, you know, which which Christian's comment m- made me think of, which I hadn't been thinking of initially, was it is also more a more valuable thing to be preserved, right? Like it needs to be guarded better. Right. Um, and that's another reason to maybe to, to sort of heighten the punishment for it. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think that I think that the point you're making that is good. I think maybe this belongs in the paper or a different paper is that um, there are not just hedonic upsides but downsides to these kinds to the features that the sharing economy possesses. Right, that it it, bo- it bears both great um, benefits for subjective well being, but also great downsides. Because I think you know it. Yeah, I think it would be it, would, it is one thing to say, hey, guess what? The condition of my room is 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 crappy to the the bell desk, and they you know get somebody up there to fix it. But if this person is like welcoming you into their home, and you feel like you have some kind of you know feature in common with them, like you you share a preference for engaging in these sort of accommodations on the um, or transactions on the sort of relatively new economy, and then it turns out that the the room that they supplied is is weak, or you feel cheated by them. Um, that's that's more costly and not just costly on a personal level, but systemically costly, right? Because it might weaken the system um, overall that we think has, has generates these outside social benefits. Yeah, you know, one one thing that people might like about the impersonal transactions are they feel that they're embedded in a more reliable sort of um, a more reliable social structure of sure. of, of yeah. protection yeah, yeah. and regulatory yeah. kind of guarantee and so when you when you like transition to a different location I guess the the same as you as you talked about the fact that with the charitable deduction giving people the re, a reason to think they're doing it f- for some selfish reason could crowd out the the altruistic motivation seems to me that the same risk uh well an analogically similar risk of you know if if you could make people quite scared of the intimacy that you originally were thinking would make them was a potential for ha- greater happiness yeah. mm-hmm. now just feels like more vulnerability and risk and so they might stay further away which would be yeah. sad like that would be bad right and and i also think it's important to mention that People's preferences will differ. So, you know, one thing that um, I was talking about this paper with Jessica, who and she was like, "Well, is any of this true for introverts?" Right? And I, and and <laughs> as one, I can say, probably not. Right? But like, look, these are aggregated studies, right? Like for for me, there is a great upside to the anonymity when I'm traveling to a conference or something. 
you know, you're, you're, you're tired at the end of the day. The last thing you want is like some chatty person like at your door being like, so how's yeah. things, right? I was like, go in and like watch TV for half an hour and then sleep. Right. Um, but some people might find it invigorating or rewarding to have that kind of interaction. So it's going to vary between individuals. I can, I, you know, I've talked to people about this who find the idea of, Having to interact, so in terms of the up for grabs registry, right? In terms of having to interact with the person to whom you might donate something to be uh, like, you know, a huge downside, right? You just want to get it out there, um, feel like you've done something good and have it off your off your ledger. And so um, all I can say to that is that there's obviously going to be individual experiences will vary, individual preferences will vary. These are all studies that suggest that in the aggregate, um, certain kinds of social practices, um, you know, sort of increase or, 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 you know, augment aggregated social or subjective well-being, um, which means that, that that could just mean that out of 100 people, 55 of them will find greater well-being, but 45 will, will find that it reduces their subjective well-being, right? So you always have to be very cautious. It's not some kind of like, you know, unequivocal truth. It's just... Um, you know, on balance, it appears that this is what the effect of, of some of these practices are. That kind of leads to the last question, the last thing I wanted to ask about, which is, um, you know, <laughs> I actually think that that one of the reasons that we acquire things for this acquisitiveness is, I think there are kind of two reasons. One is to um, to fool ourselves into thinking that we will never die. <laughs> and and the second is probably to, um, to pretend that we don't have... Um, that we don't have inadequate bodies. I think there's something about like overcoming our, our, our anxious embodiment and, and, and staving off death. And, and of course, both of these feelings dissipate almost as soon as you buy the thing. Right. And, um, or quite, you know, whether it's a house or a car or a phone or what, or what have you. And, and you talk about this, I mean, the people who study this, uh, talk about this in terms of what's, what's the phrase that they use the, um, don't it dissipates, the, it dissipation, don't the hedonic treadmill. It's the only exercise I get. <laughs> oh boy. I wish that could be a show title. Uh, so, but I wonder if, um, uh, to the extent and, and, and what seems to be true is that people who choose to get off of that treadmill and to invest in experiences with others and social connections tend to be happier and um, et cetera. So I don't know how robust all these findings are, but I, I do wonder if the trend towards the kind of the condo, um, uh, what's her name? Marie Kondo? Marie Kondo, yeah. Uh, or, or even just a trend toward, uh, you know, I saw a tiny house show on one, one of those home TV networks, home and garden TV or something like that. And now I want one of these. Once this becomes an acquisitive preference, you know, in other words, I want to consume smallness. I want to consume dispossession. Does yeah. that, will that not, at least at the, for the people who jump into it marginally like that, are we really going to see hedonic benefit, right? Because, the, you know, I, I move into my tiny house and guess what? I'm still going to die and my body is still inadequate. Right. Yeah. Uh, and or I, you know, go out with friends. Now, I think actually forming social thick social networks it isn't doesn't have the same kind of feature to it. And, you know, I'm reminded of kind of the, the you know, the Buddhist notion of dissatisfaction or suffering. Those things are the same. Right. And that if, if that's really what you're trying to alleviate, um, then the, a consumptive preference for having less doesn't seem really to alleviate. It seems to raise the same problem, right? That you're, that, that dissatisfaction is still going to be there, um, after you've consumed this thing. But I don't know. I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? I do. I, yeah. I, I, I get that. Right. So I think, and I think what you're pointing to is a concern a lot of people have raised, which is that some of the folks who express this sort of, who have, especially the minimalism stuff, 
are, are kind of insufferable, right? And there's a trendiness <laughs> about it. And there's magazines about tiny houses and there's TV shows. And I haven't, I haven't been able to leaf through uh, a single magazine about this, watch an entire TV show or Netflix movie about the whole tiny house minimalism phenomenon because to me, they tend to betray with a trendiness and materialism the whole point of why it might be a good move to do these things, right? Right. So look, if I think that, what it comes down to is partly it comes down to your intention so that if you buy a big house because you want to like, you think that that acquisition will somehow be a capstone experience of your life. It's a completely losing uh, proposition because no acquisition is going to do that. But as you're pointing out, look, if you say, look, you know what? I believe that like my salvation will be getting rid of a bunch of my stuff. I think the same thing is true. You're still going to be you. You're just going to be in a tiny house instead of a McMansion, right? Yeah, you, yeah, you just can't. You just can't buy a new you. You're, you're all you at the yeah. end of the day. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Here's where I think. Here's where I think there might be. It might cut in favor of the latter. I think the things there are other things that that necessarily are incidents of bigger or smaller houses or acquisition or or um, non-acquisition or possession or dispossession that invariably cut in favor of greater happiness, right? So even if, so I think while it's a bad idea to do anything from a motivation of, you know, following a trend or, or trying to compete um, for like social status or, or whatever, mm-hmm. um, if you buy a big house for those motivations, you're still stuck with upkeep costs, <laughs> yeah. a bigger commute, a higher mortgage. If you buy a tiny house for those motivations, Sure, you might be disappointed when it doesn't earn you the social status or or novelty value that you thought it was going to get, but at least you won't be saddled with all the ancillary costs that come with larger property acquisition, right? You won't get the debt. You won't. Well, actually, some of these things are incredibly expensive, so you might get the debt. You might have more mobility. You'll have like you'll be stripped down from your possessions because they'll force you to get rid of your stuff, etc. So I think that invariably, even though people can move toward less stuff for motivations that they're going to find um, lead them to some degree of that kind of disappointment in the sense that certain kinds of moves are, you, you regard them as your spiritual salvation and then you're just like the same person doing the same stuff in a different place. Um, I think there are necessary incidents of these moves that push in favor of greater or lesser happiness and that that recommend less over more. Yeah. And I, I ask that as someone who in law school lived with um, a wife and two kids and at one point, a couple of dogs in a 600 square foot apartment in California. Wow. And it was, and it was fantastic. I mean, yeah, it was great. Go. I mean, the, there were redwood trees outside and it was a small apartment and there was a mm. nice neighborhood and it was like, this was, it was great. And, and I think I have a larger place now and I'm, I'm certainly not happier than I was at that moment. You know, I'm, I'm not unhappy. I'm not, you know, yeah. I, but, but, and, but there's also a part of me that, that not a part of me, like if I could do anything, um, and, and still maintain contact with my family, still have my family, it would be to be a poor homeless teacher who stayed with friends mm-hmm. and just okay. went around, rent around the country, talking to people, conversing, teaching, like that kind of, that homeless Paul Erdish lifestyle, mm, right? Yeah. Uh, that, 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 you know, that is maybe my highest aspiration, uh, huh. is, is to be, a poor teacher, but, but then, you know, but that's my, that's, that's kind of my consumptive preference in a way, right? It's, it's what I aspire to. And I, but without really the means to achieve that and what would I feel like if I were able to achieve that? Yeah. I'd have fewer possessions and, and that would make me happier in all kinds of ways, but I would still be me, you know, you would. And, and may I say like, you know, one of the critiques of preferencesism is that our predictions about what will make us happier 
don't necessarily come true. Exactly. And yeah. that's one that's one thing that that's my number one reason for resisting preferentism is because if behavioralism has taught us anything, it's that we're not great at telling the future about our own well-being. So I think the only the only real question you know answer to the question, you know, um does something make you happier is try it and if it does then it does. Um, and we often idealize that which we don't have, which right? we don't have. Right. Yeah. The, ir- the irreversible decision to go and live in a commune, um, might wind you up in a place where you're staring at a bunch of dirty dishes in the sink that belong to someone else. And suddenly yeah. you realize it wasn't nearly as great an idea as you thought it was. When, yeah. Or, and, or like, you know, or Jonestown. Right. And that, yeah. That oh God. Yeah. 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 Well, we had to end it on that note, didn't we? Yeah, you know, we, we started with Hannibal Lecter, we ended up with Jonestown. Oh my I mean, God. it's a perfect circle, right? Yeah. <laughs> what, is there anything else you wanted to ask about, Joe? I mean, this I'm is... I'm just enjoying not being near a glass of Kool-Aid right now. I mean, that's my, <laughs> oh that's, my that's, that's the main thing I'm happy about oh. at this moment. That yeah. sounds so refreshing. I wish I had a... now. <laughs> jeez. Well, yeah, the last time you were on, it was talking about lines, which was such a, yeah. like, you, it was such a creative idea to even to like write a paper about that. Right. And to frame it that way, you're, I think you're just so good at kind of, uh, of taking some ideas that are out there, framing them up in the right way, Dave, and then taking them to the next place. And it's always a pleasure to, to talk to you about your projects. Hey, thanks. Well, I, I, I hate to disappoint you, but my next paper is about clowns. So you're definitely not going to want to hear about that. No, why wouldn't we want to hear about it? I, I already I, so I'm gonna hit stop on this one. I'm gonna hit record, and we're immediately starting the next, <laughs> we're the next episode um, because you know I, I I assume by the way that you're not writing a paper about us. Oh yeah, no, I mean okay. uh, that is that, that is correct. It okay, was not, it was not many of you guys as okay. clownish as clownish as we are. You are you are not right. Is this a, about clowns and and the eggs? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, let's end it. let's not say any more. I'm not gonna say right. anything more. No spoilers. <laughs> No spoilers. Right. So I will say this, but it's a paper about sort of, you know, how um, clowns use informal norms to regulate their creative production along the lines of, you know, the whole other body of work that lots of other people have done on the same topic with respect to other creative communities. Um, and I'm working on it with uh, Aaron Perzanowski of Case Western. So is this going to be talk clowny to me? <laughs> well, you well, have, well, by the way, you have to write that you have to write that with Steve Clowney. Yeah, that that would actually. Yeah, there, we should definitely have have him involved in this project somehow. But um, uh, we're also um, trying to get Judd Devian Clowney of the uh, Houston Texans to to sign off on it as well. But oh, nice. he seems uninterested for some reason. Um, but um, now, oh yeah, so so we can't use this because we actually didn't talk about Juggalos, and I wish I could take credit, but this is all Aaron's idea. His original thought for the title would be Juggalos without Juggalaws. <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah, that's a little too tortured. But what's so interesting that you brought up this, that, that it happenstance led you to mention this paper is because another thing I was thinking about as I was reading your paper is that it's so interesting to me that in the, in the digital, um, the digital goods space, right, ebooks, um, uh, iTunes and stuff, you've got Aaron Perzanowski and, and is it Jason Schultz who has written this book about yeah, the, right. the sort of the death of ownership and yep. great anxiety about ownership fading. And then there, Josh Fairfield has also published a, a book about a similar set of issues, I think called Owned, um, as opposed to the end of ownership. Um, and so in a way they're, they're, they're kind of bemoaning the, 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 
passing of something that that you're trying to celebrate the passing. Yeah, of. exactly. Um, and in in this paper, although what what I think unites them is going back to uh, something Christian said about control, right? That that mm-hmm. what makes the story in both instances is in some way about people having authorship over their own lives and their own relationship to the things around them. And you can either try to facilitate and foster that for a person, or you can try to frustrate that for a person, and the law should be trying to do more of the former and less of the latter um, so Mm. that people can feel a sense of writing the book of their own lives in a meaningful way. Whether illusory or not. And how they engage with the stuff around them. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And and subjective well-being is highly correlated with feelings of competence and feelings of control. Right. In oh, general. Right. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 That's a huge driver of happiness. And the, the, the trick of this paper, right, is that at the end of the day, I think it's sort of it doesn't it doesn't come out, you know, directly come out that the idea of property ownership. And it says it sort of accepts that as a given. And it says, what how can we affect owners preferences and motivations around the margins to nudge them in the direction of um, choices that are more likely to increase their subjective well-being in ways that are, are not obvious? Um but it doesn't it doesn't really seek to do anything truly foundational. Um, and I think that, that um, Aaron and Jason's book is more in the digital context saying that, you know, the idea of ownership as a as a benchmark for sort of a cornerstone of how we construct copyright law is increasingly less important. And that's kind of relevant to the paper in the sense that if you could get all the incidents of in, of use without the burdens of ownership, that would kind of be the best a version of the best world, right? It would mean that you could just, um, you know, like instead of having to own a car, if you could take an Uber, that seems like the best way to go, right? Because then you, you have less debt and less ownership costs, but you have um, all the, the sort of freedom of, you know, movement that uh, vehicle brings. So I think there's those, the, the, there are places where the paper and that book are actually pretty copacetic. Hmm. Awesome. Fascinating. Let's end it there. Cool. Thank you so much, Dave. We will we will meet you the next time. All right. Thanks, guys. Take care.